um, we uh, get rolling. Um, I realize, because I realize that I'm a human being, so you're a human being, and the ways that we kind of come into this room are different week to week, uh, day to day. And so um, if, if you have a humanity about you, you know that things weigh on you, right? So uh, we'd be lying if we said we all come in here with, with uh, nothing pressing, nothing bearing some weight, whether it was work, whether it was uh, something that gave you anxiety, whether it was relationships that were fractured, whether it was a uh, sin you've been dealing with, struggling with. So um, I was reminded this week, actually the last couple of weeks of... Um, something beautiful from Jesus that I wanted us just to enjoy from it. I, find, I feel like we can come into church so often and not enjoy him. You know what I mean? Like, okay, this is the thing to do. I'm in here. I'm going to do the singing part of the service, and then I'm going to listen to some preaching, and then I might consider it, might not consider it, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper, and then we'll pray some more, and then we'll sing some more songs, and then maybe I'll go out for prayer. Maybe I'll talk to some people, head out the back, and then head on our daily, weekly routine, and then you're bared with more sin, bared with more burdens, bared with more cares, and you never really just enjoy God, right? You never take time just to enjoy Him. And in Matthew 11, Jesus talks about this idea, right, that His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's this, this beautiful phrase Jesus uses, and what he's saying is that, that when you put the wrong yoke on you, which is you and your works and your achievements and all that you try to do to make yourself and make your life easy, you're wearing the wrong yoke. So if you know anything about animals, when, when the wrong yoke goes on an animal, they buck and they buck and they buck till they get the right one on them. So uh, here's what I want to just say to us this morning to, to enjoy. Um, some of us aren't wearing the right yoke. Like, like your whole week, you've been putting a yoke on you that Jesus isn't putting on you. And he's saying, come wear mine. Come wear my yoke. Come wear the one that's, where it's easy. There's, there's no burden of sin. I've liberated you to enjoy fullness of life, fullness of meaning, fullness of purpose. So why don't you transition and, and, and reset and recalibrate the yoke you've been walking in. Um, so I don't know what yoke you've been wearing this week, um, but if Here's the thing. Here's what's great about Jesus. If he says, this is how you should feel, and you don't feel that way, then you're not wearing it. So if he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and you feel burdened, and you don't feel easy, then you're not wearing the right yoke. So um, let's just take a moment together as a family just to enjoy his yoke that he says is easy, his burden that, that is light, and, and maybe just take some time casting some cares on him. Maybe you've been uh, carrying some things that he hasn't asked you to. Maybe you've been trying to play the sovereign God of the universe, and he hasn't asked you to be the sovereign God of the universe, and you can't, so give it to him anyways. Maybe some of you have been trying to fight your sin through managing sin and running from sin and not running to Jesus. Maybe you just need to run to him this morning and enjoy him. So let's just take a few minutes before we jump into Luke 12 in quiet. Confess what you need to confess. Enjoy what you need to enjoy. Say, God, help me to wear the right yoke today. And when we leave this place, help me to wear the right yoke that is burdenless and is easy and is light. Father, we're thankful that you are after pleasure, that you're after joy. You're not trying to take from us. You're actually trying to give more generously and most generously in yourself, primarily seen in the personal work of your son, Jesus. 
So God, would you help us to see the weight and the freedom and the beauty that is found in the person and work of Jesus this morning. God, I pray that those who have blind eyes that they would see, those who have deaf ears that they would hear, those who are heavy laden they'd find rest, those who are struggling would find freedom, those enslaved would be liberated. All through the wonder that is the truth that we find in your scriptures. Thank you for speaking to us and letting us know more about your character and nature and who you are and how you've wired things to work. Help us to walk rightly as a response. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 12. And if you're just visiting with us, just really super glad that you're here. Here's what's happening. If you're wondering what this thing is, it's just very simply a a worship service. So uh, we worship Jesus, who we believe is God's son, who God came in the flesh and lived the obedient life for us, died a debt in our place we couldn't pay for and couldn't kill and couldn't die. Then he rose again, validating he could do it, and then gifts us his Holy Spirit, which adopts us into a family, seals us for eternity so that we can walk in newness and freedom of life. And so uh, we worship Jesus a number of ways. We do it by singing songs like you guys, uh, like we just did, that talk about this Jesus and why he's great and what he's done. Uh, we do this by studying the scriptures that lay before us through the, the preaching ministry, the, the speaking ministry of the word, what Jesus has done and, and how he saved us. We also do this by taking the, what's called the Lord's Supper each week, which is a visible reminder of the broken body, shed, broken body shed blood of Jesus that forgives sin, that makes us new in Christ. And we also worship Jesus by giving uh, because Jesus gave most generously in his son. So we want to give back to Jesus as worship. And uh, for those of you that consider this your church home, we give in just the small black boxes, small silver boxes in the back. Um, this week is our benevolence offering. It's the last Sunday of every month, and so it's a black box on the table right in front of the uh, sound booth that you can give to. If this isn't your church home, we're not looking for money. We just want you to know Jesus. We want you to repent of sin and enter into fullness of life. We're going to see that again in Luke chapter 12. And um, here's what Jesus has been doing. In case you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, if you have been, you've been sweating a bit with a towel, okay? Because Jesus has been invading your personal space, okay? He's been getting really personal with us. He's been pressing on some things that are hard to feel, hard to um, not push back upon. But remember, Jesus is a love giver and a truth teller and grace extender, okay? So, so all that Jesus does, all that Jesus says is because he loves us, because he believes the truth sets us free. So we're a people that don't believe we have to fear the truth, We don't have to fear hard sayings from Jesus because we believe the sayings from Jesus lead into deeper meaning, deeper joy, deeper life, deeper purpose. And that when we withhold from following and obeying what he says leads into those things, we find greater hurt, greater pain, greater destruction. And so Jesus is going to keep pressing us. And so um, if I could just ask you for your help and, hey, help me be attentive, help me to focus and just allow the Lord to speak to you and maybe press and poke in areas that are good for you. Because he's a, a good dad, a good father who, who does that. He tells us the truth so we know exactly who we are, exactly what is before us and what's asked of us. So let's jump into Luke chapter 12, verse 49, where Jesus is continuing to roll out this urgent call of salvation. Okay, he's basically pleading with us to remember, right? It's, it's this urgent call. You go back to chapter 12, verse 1, and that's where he's talking to now the people who are interested in learning, interested in knowing, not disciples as in the 12, interested in, hey, I want to know what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. So he's continuing to say, here's what it means not just to be in the kingdom of God, but implications of being a part of this new kingdom under this care of this wonderful king. And so here he says in verse 49 something that seems to be a bit odd that we'll understand in a minute. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it already be kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Okay, so Jesus says something right out of the gate that seems a bit odd. He says, um, I have fire that I want to cast the earth, but I, but I wish it was kindled. It's not kindled yet. Hey, I, I wish I had a baptism that I could already take part in, but I can't take part in yet. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? With, with this fire he's trying to cast down to the earth and this baptism that he has to undergo. Well, uh, well you'll see throughout the scriptures that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news that we talk about all the time, is something that purifies and something that punishes. Right? So, so the person who sees Jesus, he sees him as Lord, Savior, Rescuer, Redeemer, King, the one who receives him as that, he, God actually purifies him, makes him new in Christ. The one who says, I don't want that, no thank you God, I want to live life my own way, I don't want to abide to what you said, even though I'm the one who was made, you're the one who made all things, I'm saying no, I'm, I'm going to run my own rat race and be the God of my life, that, to that person this gospel fire punishes, Right? Because there is eternal torment waiting for those who don't turn in repentance to Jesus. And so he's saying there is this gospel fire, and it's coupled with the cross. That's his baptism. He's alluding to, I'm in distress because I want to just get this over with. I'm about to be baptized with the judgment of God on myself for sinners. Baptism, right, means to be immersed in something. So Jesus Christ is saying, there is turmoil in me until I finally get to the cross and I'm baptized under the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the judgment of God, so it doesn't have to fall on people that trust me. And he says, I wish it was kindled. And what is the fire that ignites this good news? It's Jesus. He's the kindling to the fire. He's the one who set ablaze so that you don't have to be. Right? He's the one who, who covers you in his garments so as fire and wrath and punishment comes towards you in your sin, you're covered. So, so he's saying, these things are going to happen. This is why I came, and if you turn to me, I'm going to purify you. If you don't turn to this baptism, it will bring about punishment and destruction. So Jesus understands this is necessary because he must bear the judgment for all who will believe. Now, um, it's this reality that causes him so much distress. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but did you know that Jesus basically lived in a perpetual state of the Garden of Gethsemane? Like, it wasn't like he made it to the garden, then he realized the full weight of what he was doing, and then he started sweating drops of blood. That, that blood that he was, you know, sweating out was actually the culmination of his whole ministerial life building up towards, okay, it's finally here, it's finally going to be done. He had distress in himself fervently. Every waking moment of his life, he knew it was before. Remember in Luke chapter 9, we, we saw his face set towards Jerusalem now? Like, he, he knows where he's going. He knows he's going towards the cross. He knows he's going to make a ransom and payment for sin. He knows what's happening. That's not easy for him. He willfully submits to God the Father, but in his humanity you see that struggle, you see that turmoil, you see that anguish, so that we don't have to bear it, friends. So that you don't have to live your life in anguish, anticipating the day of judgment where Jesus says, I can set you free now, not just eternally, but presently. Amazing imagery that Jesus is giving here. And Jesus' whole life was anticipating being the kindling for the judgment of God so that God could render judgment both to purify people and to punish those who don't turn to him. And this is why he says, you thought I came to give peace, question mark. No, 
I came to give division. Now, um, there might be some confusion because right now, a lot of you, if you're like me, like whenever I, I read and I, I see things, I always ask questions. So you're going, hold on a second. I'm, I'm thinking of all the verses in my head right now that talk about how God came to bring peace, right? And, you, and you'd, be, you'd be right. You, that'd absolutely be true. So you have in the beginnings of Luke, we saw, what, two years ago, if you can remember that, how the angels show up, right, on Christmas morning and say, hey, I've come to bring great peace, good news of good tidings, of great joy, right? It'll be peace to all people. You're, you're thinking about where, where Paul preaches in Ephesians 2, and he says, hey, I, I preached peace to those who were far off, right? The Gentiles, this, this inclusion of all people, all tribes, all tongues now. It's not just an Israelite thing. It's a, it's a nationally global thing. You're thinking about John 14, right, where Jesus says, hey, I came to give you peace and leave my peace with you. you all these things are ringing in your head. Then you got the Jewish belief, Jewish listeners, right, right now are thinking of Isaiah chapter 9, their Old Testament Bible, who are going, wait, I thought the Messiah was supposed to be a prince of peace. So, so if, the, if you're the Messiah, I mean, aren't you supposed to bring about peace? Now, they're thinking national peace. They're thinking peace governmentally. They're thinking peace politically. Aren't you just going to set up peace right now? I mean, that, that's what's going through their heads. And, and what's amazing is even if you read in chapter in Luke, you've been seeing every time he leaves a miracle, what does he say? My peace I leave with you. So what's Jesus talking about? In one sense, absolutely, he came to bring peace. Right? He came to bridge the gap, reconcile us to God, right? make peace through the blood of his cross, Colossians says, so that we were once enemies of God, we can be made right with God because of the sacrifice of his son. But John the Baptist right, came before Jesus, and Jesus came, and they both came preaching a kingdom of peace. They both did. But there's always a condition Christ has to take up residency and peace in the hearts of men and women. Like there's got to be personal peace in you. That's how peace is manifested. There's got to be personal peace first. That's, there's got to be repentance of sin and turning towards Christ. And so here you see, if you don't receive the Prince of Peace, then you're not going to live in a kingdom of peace. Right? Right? I mean, do you see that broken down? If you've been following through Luke, that's what we've been seeing. You have to actually accept and lean into and trust the one who is peace, who makes peace with God, where you're an enemy of God, become a friend of God. You go from an adversary of God to an actually child of God. So, so this all happens in the personal work of Jesus. There's this beautiful, glorious exchange that takes place in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus. But if there's no peace reigning in you personally, there's inevitably going to be division. But like you, you can't not repent of sin and turn to Christ and expect peace. And, and that's why Jesus says, I came to give division. What's Jesus saying here? In another sense, he's saying the gospel isn't just about bringing peace. The gospel divides. You know, Jesus Christ is the dividing line of human history. Right? I mean, what you choose to do with Jesus determines your destiny eternally and presently. Saved, lost, heaven, hell, forgiven, not. I mean, I mean, Jesus divides every human, every person into two categories. I hear all the time, there's like 18 different categories of people, even spiritually. You know, we want to put them all in different camps. You know, biblically, there's only two. It's very easy, forgiven or not, saved or unsaved. 
Jesus always is, is the dividing line and says, hey, those who will perish are here. Those who are saved are here. Hey, I'm the way you find one of those. And Jesus brings in here showing that this gospel, this good news will divide. It will divide humanity. He's going to show it. will even trickle down to the family. Now, real quick, why does the gospel of Jesus Christ divide? Um, the most basic way I can say it is if you read Romans 1, right? Great chapter in the Bible. It shows that God created the world. He made all things to work a certain way and so that his people could operate in that certain way. And so here's what he's doing. He's going, hey, you can live within the realm that I've made all things. And if you do that, if you chase me and chase the way I've wired the universal work and wired you to work, you'll find greatest meaning, depth, joy, beauty, and purpose. And here's what happens. God does all of that. God gives generously to creation and says, hey, here I am. Here's how you can live. Here's how you can know fullness of life. And the first guy says, nope, don't want any of it. God goes, okay, then keep chasing your thing. It's going to end up in hell. It's going to end up in destruction. It's going to end up in a darker heart, a more debased mind. They keep chasing it, keep running after it, and that keeps going. So this is the fundamental sin of the universe. I'm a better God than the God who made everything, so I'm going to run my life. I'm going to orchestrate all things. I decide how things go, how sex works, how food works, how relationships work, how marriage works, how work works, how obedience works, how righteousness works, how end times work, how heaven works, how hell works. You start playing God, even though you didn't pass fifth grade or you flunk kindergarten, right? I've said this a lot. You think that you can say more and know more than the God of the universe. God of the universe is going, hold on, I made things to work a certain way. So we commit treason, right? We become glory thieves. We want glory. We want to be known. We want to be established. We want to tell everybody else how to rule and reign, and yet God is saying, only I do that. And you've come out from under my covering, and so it's going to lead to death. It's going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to not fullness of life, but constant angst in your heart, where you just run the cycle of insanity thinking that what will work that hasn't worked might work at some point. And, and you keep chasing it, even though it betrays you over and over and over. And so because this happens, because we've committed idolatry, because we've bought the lie that being God is better than God being God, and because our hearts grow dark and usurping his role, division happens in the heart. Division happens in relationship. Now, this can play out in hundreds of ways. Hundreds of ways, right? I mean, Bergen County, probably two biggest items are sex and money, right? So, so you can use either of those and just, just walk through this, right? So, so God makes man and woman. God, God frames them. God fashions them. He, he puts the cells in their body. He shapes them the way they're supposed to be shaped. He, he gives them this gift of marriage, which the scriptures are going to say, even in Hebrews, it's this intellectual love, a soul love, right? So it's not just physical. It's intellectual too. So you love knowing the person and growing in the person. So we say, we buy the line on every counter that you walk out of the grocery store that says, no, to be a better lover is to have more sex with more people so you can learn what this looks like and be more satisfied. So you buy that lie, buy the magazine, and now you go from partner to partner, marriage to marriage, couple to couple, you know, person, partner to partner, and you're going every time, well, this isn't satisfying. You keep hitting the wall because you're trying to live in something that wasn't designed to be lived that way. So you're saying, no, God, I don't want to hear what you want to say. I want to do it. I want to say what culture says. And so you're running the rat race. So you're now upheld by your lust, not upheld by Jesus until you break free is turning to him, letting him break that thing in your life. You can use money. You can use food. You can use achievements. You can use prestige. 
prestige. You can use identity. Whatever it is that you go after saying, this is why this was given, instead of I'm a worshiper, I'm created to worship God who made it. And until I use it the way it's supposed to be used, I'm going to find deeper discontentment. Some of you guys, we've talked. You're still in that circle. You're using your job for you. You're using your money for you. You're using your achievements for you, all to make much of you to still be a God. And God is saying, it's not going to lead you anywhere. You're just going to keep hitting the wall. Like money, work, food, achievements was to roll off of you to me and bring great glory to me and worship me so you're free. You're not enslaved to the good gifts. You use good gifts rightly. It's like I give you golf clubs, you go beat your dog with your golf clubs and get mad at me for giving you golf clubs. I'm like, well, you're supposed to play golf. I know, but I decided to beat my dog. Okay, well, you didn't use the gift right. And then you get mad at the giver. Do you see how silly that is? How, how come sex isn't working for me? How come marriage isn't working for me? Well, because you're not operating it the way that God gave it. I mean, how come I'm feeling discontentment in my achievements because your achievements weren't namely for you? You're not living and operating in the ways that God has wired and created the universe to be. And so you're upheld by a gift and not the giver of the gift. And when you're upheld by the giver of that gift, your kingdom will crumble, brothers and sisters. It will fall apart miserably in your soul, in your relationships, among friends. And so here Jesus is showing us that we find security in him, joy in him, satisfaction in him, and this is why there will inevitably be division. When the human heart decides God is trying to kill my joy and not give me joy and says no thanks to how he's wired it, when you speak this, when you say this, when you articulate this, when you live in accordance to how God has wired and fashioned you to work and operate, other people are going to divide against you. When you say that marriage is between one woman and one man, it's going to divide against you. Because we see how God has fashioned and wired and created all things to work. And so when you start living this way, there's going to be a rub. There's going to be division in that not everyone's going to respond favorably to your passion for God and his kingdom. Now, if any of us have lived any, any millisecond for Jesus, you know this is true. Right, like all of a sudden, everyone doesn't just flock to you and go, oh, I want Jesus, right? Because you love him now. Like that, that's not in Jesus' life, it's not in the apostles' life, and it's not going to be in your life. Now, God in his grace will call and woo sinners to himself through him working through you by his grace. Not because you're a big deal, because he's awesome, right? That's, that's how he'll do it. Not your goodness, but his amazing goodness. And so, as you do this, as we see, there will be hostility against us. There will be a division against us as we grow in our devotion to the kingdom of God, Jesus says others will grow more opposed to the kingdom of God. And that's what he's seeing in Luke. And here he shows conflict will involve always those closest to you. Look at verse 52. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Praise the Lord. If you have in-law issues, it's biblical, <laughs> right? I read this this week, and I, I love you, Mom. My mother-in-law's here. Love her. Love her. She's amazing. But I'm saying, hey, if you experience friction and you're... Here's what, what Jesus is getting at. 
might play a role. In Jesus' day, those people who decided to follow Jesus and pursue Jesus, they were called, they were, it was called like unsynagoguing them, kicking them out of the synagogue, like excommunication. They were social outcasts. You start following Jesus, you're not allowed to gather anymore, you're not allowed to worship anymore. There's, there's division immediately happening, friction happening, and especially within the family. Especially if you're, you're someone who's thought that this messianic Messiah was coming, right, to establish national peace, and then your son or your daughter, or your dad or your mom's going, hold on a second, I, he's actually bringing internal peace. He actually came to redeem me from sin, and half of him is going, no, he ain't God, and half of him is going, yes, he is God. Well, there, there's division that's starting to thread there, right? You see that happening. So, so here Jesus is showing in this that depending on how many Christians, it's hypothetical, two against three, three against two, depending how many Christians are in your family and none, there's going to be a rub there. There's going to be division. There. There's going to be hostility there because they don't see the world the way you see the world. Their eyes have not been opened to the glories of Christ yet. So you can't expect them to see the world the way that you see the world, and there will be a dividing line here. And Jesus calls you and I to make the break no matter what the breach might be. He's linking this to Luke 9. If you want to follow me, because I'm the greatest treasure you'll ever find. You die to yourself, you pick up your cross, and you follow me, even if your mother turns against you, even if your son or daughter turns against you, even if a family member is hostile towards you. You still take Jesus because he's life, because he's depth, because he's meaning, because he's salvation, and you beg God to save those who don't know him yet. But there will be a dividing line. There will be hostility. There will be friction. There will be a rub. You live in a fantasy if you think there won't be. And here's why. If you start fulfilling Jesus' call in Luke 9 to you to pick up your cross, die to yourself, follow me, that, that he's the allegiance alone, that hell really exists, that he, he punishes those who don't turn to him, that he asks for obedience that's spirit, fueled by the Holy Spirit, that we love righteousness now more than sin and folly. You start articulating that, saying that, living that, somebody with your last name won't like you. Or that message. Even if maybe they even claim to be a Christian. Well, you're getting a little radical. Okay, just trying to live according to the scriptures. You're judging us. You're, you're offending us by, well, no, I'm, I'm just trying to live according to what Jesus has said and what Jesus has laid out. It's not just unbeliever and believer. It could even be within the context of believers. Here Jesus is showing us something sobering, and here's why. As soon as you begin to do that, as soon as you begin to take Jesus seriously, he's not just like some guy you profess, some guy you decide to follow, some guy that, you know, okay, if I just confess my sins, I'm forgiven, I put in cruise control, I just coast the rest of my life. If you start taking Jesus' call seriously, all of a sudden you realize you're stepping onto a path that's narrow. You start taking a stand in culture, you start taking a stand on marriage, you start taking, all of a sudden, right, the phrase starts to leave and you find yourself in like this one light bulb just illuminating you, right? Because Jesus says the narrow road, right, leads to life. It's really narrow. There are going to be lots of people on the wide road, lots of people, and he said that road leads to destruction, but the narrow road leads to life. There's a narrow road that few will find, but those that find it find greatest joy and meaning in unexpected places. 
because they adhere to the truth and they respond to the truth that Jesus gives them. This is emotional and this is hard. I'm not saying this is spirit fingers. <laughs> this, is, this is deeply grueling to walk in this, especially when the conflict comes with family. And you're in really good company here because all of us have family members that don't yet know or have tasted the goodness of God. And so here, Jesus is showing the more you pursue Jesus, walk with Jesus, love Jesus, the more complicated your relationships closest to home are gonna be. It's gonna be conflict with your parents, with your siblings, with your children. But friends, Jesus is not telling us this to discourage us. He's telling us this to instruct us and to prepare us. He's just saying, this is how it's going to be. So don't be surprised. This is going to happen. Your heart's going to get hurt. Emotions are going to sway. This is why, brothers and sisters, Sunday morning is so important. Right? I mean, if you've been coming for any length of time, you know that we say that we treasure, we value the Sunday gathering. Why? Because this is like, Mike McKinney said this a couple weeks ago that I loved, it's like the game day, right? Where you show up and you're getting ready with all of the saints, right? The people that love God, love Jesus, and you're going, okay, I'm going to recalibrate my mind. I'm going to recalibrate my heart. I'm going to remember that life and death, immortality, mortality, heaven, hell, save, lost, forgiven, unforgiven, kingdom of God, outside the kingdom of God. I'm going to be reminded of what's true, and we're all going to come together and declare that to God and say that to God, declare Jesus is my allegiance. I realize my citizenship isn't here. It's in another place. I realize that today is so finite. God could return at any moment. I realize that, man, my mortality is, is just could be waiting on me. I could get my car and die leaving this place. I could die in a week. I'm not guaranteed any ounce of span, span of my life. I am all of a sudden fixed upon what's true. And so we come together, brothers and sisters, and we love this because we have to have it. Because when the ostracism comes, when the criticism comes, when the, when the rebuke comes, we're reminded. We come Come back in, weary souls, beat up, stumbling, but we're a big, goofy, beautiful mess because Jesus loves us, saves us, redeems us, and we recalibrate our minds once again saying, this is why I'm alive, this is why I exist, this is what I'm for, this is what I'm against, this is what gives me truest meaning and truest of life, this is what does it. Some of you guys that are just caught in the enslavement of sin, the temptations, the, the tanglements, you come in here to be, to be freed, right? To be reminded that, man, that's going to kill you. Like, if you follow your way in the highway and not God's way, it's going to kill you. So we come in together to be reminded of that, to be spoken to by God, to say things to Him, to ask for help to pray, to visibly remember in the broken body and shed blood that, man, this is what Jesus has done. That's why this is so important. I mean, come on, an hour and a half? People whine about an hour and a half. I have to sit under the Bible for this. I, guys, guys, do you understand what's happening on Sunday? The divine realities, the necessity of us being filled and fueled and taught and instructed the things and ways of God. This is necessary for our persevering in the faith. God has clearly established that, clearly orchestrated that, clearly designed that so that this is not random, this is not aimless. 
there are divine things happening right now. There, there's actually a war, which is why we get in the back room at 9 a.m. to pray against the adversary, against the enemy, because right now there's spiritual forces vying for your soul. Do you realize that? Like the second you walk in the door, he wants you to think of something else, something that's so tasteless, something that doesn't mean anything, something that's no match to Jesus. He wants you to think about that, dwell on that, the food you're going to eat later, the person you're going to talk to, the things you've got to deal with. No, he wants to clear your mind for this time in here and say, hey, see me, look up, pay attention. That's, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what God is doing in the gathering. This is beautiful. It's remarkable. It's supernatural that even now God himself is holding back spiritual forces from assault so that his people can hear. Praise God. That's another sermon. All right. So Jesus now says, we have to be careful here. Because a good question you got to ask yourself is, well, what's causing division against my family, my friends, my neighbors? Is it the truths of the gospel and Jesus, or is it you? There's a big difference. I know some people are like, man, yeah, I just, I cause division everywhere. It's great. I just, no, you're a jerk. Right? I, honestly, like there, there's no empathy in you, no compassion in you. You're, you're haughty, you're arrogant. You're like, man, everywhere I go, people just divide from me. Here's my text. I'm killing it. No, you're not. You're a jerk. People don't like you. Right? I mean, we seriously have to be careful here. Yes, we contend for the truth. Yes, we speak the truth. But look at what, what Paul says. This is really, really helpful in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So we are not peddlers, but we're also sincere. And I love this. If you read right before, he talks about how we're the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing. We're not called to be rude, self-serving, arrogant, but meek, humble, serious ambassadors for the truth. So what Paul is saying here is we're not, we're not peddlers, right? So we're not selling a gospel that's palatable to everyone and stripping it of its offensive character, right? I'm not doing that, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not just selling a cheap gospel. It's very costly. So that person doesn't talk about the crucifixion, doesn't talk about hell, doesn't talk about repentance, doesn't talk about any of those things. But he says here, we are sincere. There's empathy in that word. There's deep compassion in that word. So what Paul is rolling out is if someone's offended by the cross or the truth of God's word, okay, that's their issue. But if someone is offended by me, by something unnecessarily that I do, a sinful motive, a sinful characteristic, that's on me. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I became all things to all men so that by all possible means, God might save some. So here is a question I want to ask you. In your evangelism, or in how you think of others, do you genuinely try to persuade or to punish? Like, does it give you joy to, like, punish people with the truth? You're going to hell. You're going to die. You're going to be in judgment, right? When there's really no love for, in your heart, there's no empathy in your heart, are you just trying to persuade them to the truth but you can't stand that they might be lost. I find for some of us, and I'm in this camp of the deeply theological, right? You're just really heady. If we're not careful, we become very haughty, very arrogant, and we beat people up. And instead of being a benefit to the gospel, we're a bully to the gospel. 
So you got to be careful. There are others of you that are like, man, I've never seen the gospel be divisive in any area of my life at all. Well, maybe that's because you're not living for Jesus in any area of your life at all. I mean, you've got both where you got to do the heart work to say, okay, what's going on here? Where am I landing in these two categories, and where might God be pushing me or moving me? Because if you start living at all for Jesus, there's going to be a rub with somebody. And yet at the same time, we're not trying to be jerks and self-serving and rude and arrogant and haughty because the gospel of grace humbles us. I mean, if, if the good news that we know, friends, is that a holy, righteous God who's good and we are not comes and dies for his enemies and has his sons killed for his enemies then what do we have left to boast in when he reconciles us through what he did and not anything that we did? We don't celebrate our goodness, we celebrate his. And so Jesus is ultimately saying at this point, there will be division, and you need to realize this. But I think we need to be careful in what's causing that division because we can abuse text too. I thought about that verse where Jesus says, Here's the greatest commandment, Matthew 22. Love Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. This is so helpful. Honestly, this has been so helpful with me when I talk to neighbors, especially the ones last night that had a roaring, raging party till like midnight, the night before my sermon. I mean, they're playing red hot chili peppers on their deck. I'm serious, last night. And in my heart, I'm just like boiling. I wanna go over and be like, hey, you pagans, shut it off. Right, like you're all gonna perish. I mean, so, so as I'm feeling that, honestly, this verse was brought to mind, no lie. Last night, this verse was brought to mind as I'm laying in bed, trying to go to sleep, preparing for a sermon, right, as I'm here, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication, right? That's not what you wanna be thinking about as you're preparing for a sermon. So, so as I'm hearing that, I'm, I'm here in Matthew 22, love the Lord you with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. So if I in my heart and my neighbor who's eternally lost, and I don't know the saving good news of Jesus. I mean, what's the one thing I'm gonna want from my neighbor? I mean, you ever thought about that? Like, if you really want them to treat you as you would want to be treated, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you know all that you know right now of the saving, good, kind work of God, that he rescued you from the sin that enslaved you, right? You were at the, at the bottom, you saw the Christ of cross, you saw his wrath-absorbing work, and he says, you're mine, welcome to my family. If you know that, isn't that going to drive you to want to do something empathetic, compassionate, love-driven for your neighbor? Like, aren't you going to go, man, I, I, I wish they would tell me that. I wish they would lovingly come alongside me and in compassion and empathy, yet seriousness, contend for the truth. So I started praying for them. It only lasted like two seconds. But I started, I started praying for them. I did. I started praying for them and asking God, help me to love them right now. Lord, just would you even now awaken them to the truth? Would you speak to them? Would you put Christians in their life? If it's me, okay, I might go kicking and screaming, but I'll, but, but hey, is that how you see people? That people have souls. Like, they're not just someone for you to, like, rat off your theology. They have a soul. Like, like they will eternally be somewhere. So, we go in empathy, but with contending for the truth. And here Jesus is going to say, wake up to how I've wired this thing to work. There will be division of those who refuse to humble themselves. So he rolls in the urgent call of salvation. Remember, this is coming off the heels of the second coming that he talked about. Verse 54, he said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say it once. A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? 
So Jesus turns his attention to the crowds, right, laying before this urgency, being that your own God will never work out for you. It ends in deepest pain possible, and he uses weather, and he's going to use judgment, okay? He starts with weather. Weather is something that we all use to prepare for the future, right? I mean, we, we plan our vacations. We plan our outings. We plan our days. We, we get our weather app out. We look at the weather channel. I mean, we do this all the time. Man, am I going to go outside tomorrow? Am I going to sit by the pool? Am I going to take my kids for a walk? What's it going to be like? Will that trip be nice? Will it not be nice? We all know how to use the weather to prepare for the future to anticipate something that's about to happen. And Jesus says, and uses this analogy and goes, hey, their, their version of the weather app was tracking the winds, tracking the clouds like a Sorocho in, in California, right? You got the hot wind coming from the south. That meant it was going to be a heat storm. You could see the clouds that look gray in the far distance. It means it's going to rain. He goes, hey, you guys are obsessed with tracking the weather and planning for now, yet you don't plan for eternity. You don't plan for forever. You're looking at the weather in anticipation for your future, but you don't get ready for eternity. Are you, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? I don't know. I know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. Well, that's silly. You can prepare what you're going to wear tomorrow, but not how you're going to be dressed for eternity, either in the righteousness of the Son of God or not. And he's saying we have all these things that we settle for and we prepare for Everybody asks, right? How are you preparing for summer? How are you preparing for fall? What are you going to wear in the fall? What, what new wardrobe are you going to wear? No one says, hey, how are you preparing for heaven? We need to be prepared to stand before God. We need to check our hearts more than the weather channel. That's what Jesus is saying. This recalibration. Don't forget this life is serious. Don't forget, I'm coming back. Don't forget, you guys know something as simple as how to discern the time. So can't you discern Jesus' life and ministry and his witness and discern what that means for the future? That's what Jesus is saying. And here's the irony of the statement Jesus just made. The Jews prided themselves in discernment. That's primarily who he's speaking to. They prided themselves on spiritual insight and they failed to discern eternal serious results. And Jesus is going, haven't you seen my life in ministry? To those here, haven't you been hearing about my life and my ministry and my work and who I am and what I've done and how I am the truth and only the truth will set you free? And then he rolls into judgment, verse 57, and then I'll show you how these come together. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is something that would happen just like today. You do a preliminary hearing before a major hearing. If you commit some horrific offense towards somebody, then they go, hey, I want to make this right. So, so they want to take you to court. So you go before the, the first person, they lay out all the facts, and then eventually that person will send you to the judge, right? And you don't want to get to the judge, because if you get to the judge, all the facts have already been showing that you're guilty, that you've got no fight in this thing, and he's going to send you to the officer, and the officer's going to throw you in prison. And back then, a debtor's prison, no one ever got out. Man, they just laid there in, in anguish and until they died. So he goes, wait, wait, don't, man, get this thing settled before you get to the judge. Like, you, don't have, you don't want this thing to go to the judge, because when you go to the judge, you're going to be naked with, all, with nothing to say, and the court's not going to judge for you, and then you're going to get thrown to the officer, and the officer's going to throw you in 
prison, and you're never going to get out there because you're going to have to pay down to the very last penny of what you owe, of what's stored up, of what debt you incurred is worth. So here's what Jesus is saying. Here's Jesus' point, friends. He's saying, if you've got any sense, settle now with the judge. Like, don't, don't wait thinking when you get to the judge. Don't think that when you stand before God, you go, well, I don't know, I guess I, I think the good will outweigh the bad. Like, like, like don't wait for that. I mean, don't, don't waste your time. See, here he's showing, here, here's the cold, hard truth, right? He's saying, if you've got any sense, you'll settle your issues of guiltiness before the God of the universe before you arrive to see him. Here's the cold, hard truth. Last time I checked, death is char- hard charging at 100%. So all of us are going to die, right? None of us in this room are not going to die unless Jesus returns first, okay? So, so here's what happens is, is sin entered the world, and that's why death entered the world. So there is death spiritually and physically. That's why we will all die. Before sin entered the world, there was life. There was no room for death. God didn't didn't give death. When Adam and Eve chose their way over God's, which is idolatry, which is us being God over him, sin entered the world and caused this thing called death, called ending. But we know that we've got a proverbial date coming in court to stand before the judge that's going to echo on for our eternity. So here he's laying before us that we're going to actually go to that judge one day in the proverbial court with our accused What's the accuser? All your thoughts, all your deeds, all your motives, your heart, the wickedness that reigns there, all the lust that no one saw, all the thoughts you didn't say but wanted to say, all the hateful things you thought in your heart but didn't say, all the things you didn't do but wanted to do. Everything is laid bare. Everything is exposed. You need someone in that moment to plea for you. And he's saying no one's going to plea for you. Like, no one's going to stand for you. No rights you do, no merits you do, no works you do, no prayers you do, no church attendance, no good works for the poor. None of that's going to stand when you stand before the judge. The only thing that's going to stand is a champion that goes in your place. His name is Jesus. Right, it says in Hebrews 9, we're all destined to die once, and then comes judgment. So Jesus does what 2 Corinthians says, is he takes our sin on himself. He actually becomes our sin for us in our place, dies to death, and then there's this amazing, amazing work where there's this exchange, Martin Luther said, where he gives you righteousness. He actually gives you the righteousness of his son. So the only thing that's going to stand for you on the proverbial day of court is the righteousness of Jesus, and not you. And Jesus is saying, I'm right in front of you. Like, I'm the one who can help you settle your debt now. I'll pay your debt. I'll cancel it in full down to the last cent. Do you know what you are storing up until you stand before the judge? Unending divine judgment and wrath to be poured out on you for those who do not turn to Jesus. And he says, I'll pay it off to the last penny. And I'll take every ounce of fire. That kindling I talked about in verse 49, man, I'm going to take all of that on the cross, and it's going to be upon me, and I'm going to just totally squelch the wrath of God, totally appease it so you can walk in freedom of life, in newness of life. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit so you think clearly, you see clearly, you, you discern truth, you walk, you're no longer enslaved to sin, you have the freedom to pursue me and walk with me and know me. To settle now. Settle the court now. And how do you settle? How do you settle in the court? I just said it. By putting your full weight and trust in Jesus, the Son of God that died and was kindled for you and took the judgment and paid your debt to the last penny. So when you stand before the judge, you don't owe anything. 
And hear me, if you have some court you're waiting on to appeal for you when you stand before the judge, no court will stand outside of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying God is a reconciling God. God longs to reconcile those who are far from God to be brought near. Grace is available. Forgiveness is available. Freedom from sin is available. Some of you guys are, are sitting here going, that just doesn't make any sense. Right? Like, that just sounds too good to be true. It is! Right? It is too good to be true. I mean, that's why we love talking about that word, understanding that biblical word called grace. You are given something that you didn't earn and you don't deserve. I mean, it's just giving you. Like, someone walk up to you as you're heading out, wrote you a check for a million dollars. You'd be like, why'd you do that? Because I wanted to. That's Jesus. Because I wanted to. I didn't have to. I don't need to. My father's still going to get glory. But I'm just going to save you because I can. I'm going to offer you a way out because I can. I'm going to stand for you in the proverbial day of court before the judgment, and I will stand for you in your behalf, in your place, as your righteousness, and you can be free. Here's what's great, brothers and sisters. Not just free eternally, free right now. I always say, the gospel saves me from sin every day I wake up. I'm not saying I don't sin. I sin all the time. (laughs) I don't boast in that. I boast that Christ shows me grace and frees me from enslavement to sin every single day. It's not just some future event. It's right now. It's right now. Fullness of life is now. Isn't it amazing that God would say, I'm willing to meet with you right now. I'm willing to settle your court date that's coming right now. Isn't that brilliant grace? So my hope is that there will be some who came in and thought, you know what, I'm never going to give church a shot, never going to give Jesus a shot. I'm too far down this path. You know, there's no sin, no past, no story, nothing, no corner you can hide in with more power than the story of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, that's why that day was so brutal, why he was slaughtered for you and shed his blood for you and broke his body for you and rose again, validating that he alone conquers Satan, sin, and death for you. So on the court date, those who are his, those who are his saints, have nothing to fear but eternal glory. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help. God, help us to know this. Help the weight of eternity to shape us. I pray for some this morning who have been playing games with the proverbial court date. They think they have some tabs to them, some works to them, some merits to them that will look good on the day of judgment, that will help them in your consideration of bringing them into eternal glory, that God, none will work outside of Jesus. Father, would some today repent of sin and turn to Christ? Would some today see the goodness of your son, the way that you've made things to work, the sin that enslaves and the freedom that you offer? God, would you give us courage where there is division? Would you give us compassion and empathy and contention for the truth? God, help us to be good missionaries, be good ambassadors. Will we love our neighbors as we would like to be loved ourselves? Father, help us to remember the weight and the seriousness of life, the mortality that is here and the immortality that is to come. Father, thank you for shedding your blood and breaking your body for us to free us from the sentence that would come and all the accusations that would come rightfully to punish. 
Thank you for caring to forgive and extending grace to those who don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.